Good. Well, if you have uh, a Bible, it'd be helpful to have Romans 8 uh, open in front of you. We're going to look at uh, just a few verses uh, from this great chapter this morning. I'm taking my life in my hands a little bit with a sporting illustration to start with this morning, especially uh, what, uh, given what happened yesterday. But um, I don't know if, you are, uh, if your allegiances are to the Welsh team. I imagine they are. Uh, we're not going to talk about yesterday. But if, if, uh, if rugby is your sport and if you uh, enjoy watching it, um, you, you probably know uh, how much advantage it is to play at home and to have uh, home voices there. And uh, maybe, maybe that was a factor yesterday. Maybe, I mean, it sounded like there was quite a lot of Welsh fans in the stadium yesterday when the match was going on. But it does add something, doesn't it? Uh, tangible to the way a team performs when there are people uh, cheering you on, when there are people that are on your side and for you and uh, are making that noise for you and singing and, and all the rest of it. And now, of course, there is another sport, and uh, you won't be surprised, uh, given the medal I shared earlier, that there is a better sport than rugby. I know, it's astonishing. But there is. Cycling is a far better sport than rugby. Uh, it's much more accessible, and uh, it's, a, it's just a great sport. And uh, you can disagree with me afterwards. But anyway, to continue the illustration a bit, there is, um, there is something special. If you've ever watched any of the big cycling races, there are a few Welsh cyclists, not many, but there are a few. And it always makes me smile a little bit when you see uh, Garrett Thomas or maybe Luke Rowe, who's sort of at the end of his career maybe. But if you see them, um, see them slogging up some, some hill somewhere, slogging up some mountain in the Pyrenees or the Alps, and on the side of the road, uh, occasionally you'll just see uh, a little Welsh flag or something on the back of a truck. And, it's, and it must be a great encouragement to them to know that there's someone there who is for them, someone who knows them, someone who's got a connection with them, cheering them on. And it does help, doesn't it? It helps us to know that someone there is, uh, is for us. Maybe to change the illustration a bit, change the, uh, the picture. If you're in a courtroom and uh, you, are, you are there, you're standing trial for something. You're not a lawyer, so you can't adequately... Uh, you can't uh, defend yourself, but there's someone in that court there who is for you, someone who knows the case, someone who knows the details, someone who can uh, speak for you. It's a great help, isn't it? Great encouragement. Or maybe think of your family, and uh, hopefully this is the case for you. It may not be, but hopefully it is. Others might not always get on with you. Others might, um, might not understand you so much or be patient. Your personality might just rub people up the wrong way. But hopefully when you get to your family, whoever they are and however it's made up, they're the ones who are for you. They're the ones who know you, understand you, are patient with you. They love you. They care about you. You're sort of safe with that. Having someone for you is a huge encouragement and a huge advantage. And uh, so no prizes this morning for guessing which verses we're going to go to in uh, Romans 8. Uh, if you were paying attention as we read, uh, it won't be surprise you that we're going to zoom in this morning on verses 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31 and 32 say this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? They're great verses. Um, and the central theme really of those verses is very simple to state, uh, very easy to state, but it is profound. And it is encouraging for us to really grasp. And I hope that we'll grasp something of it uh, this morning. Now, obviously, this verse doesn't stand on its own. It's in a great chapter. It's in a great uh, book of the Bible, and it's in the Bible, of course. So we'll have to understand a bit of that as we go on. But just, I want you just to zoom in on these verses this morning and be encouraged. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God is for us. Uh, Paul is not asking the question because he's in any doubt about it. God is for us. And uh, we can be encouraged in that. Uh, if God is for us and he is, then who can be against us. 
God is not against us. He's not against you if you belong to him. And if you're in Christ, God is for you. So all I want to do this morning simply is just to work through these verses in, uh, in verse 31, these words in verse 31 and 32. And uh, just uh, pause a little bit on them and think about them a bit and learn something good for our souls and something that will help us as we seek to live for God this, this coming week, whatever it brings to us. Well, let's just work through these bit by bit then. Well, first of all then, what, Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? Well, the question is, in response to what? What does he mean? Um, what is he talking about? So obviously these verses weren't penned by the Apostle Paul to be sort of put on a poster or on a little card and kept from all the rest of the context that's there. They were written into this, into this, into this letter, into this chapter, into this book, the Bible. Um, they're, they're part of it. There's a flow of thought here. And it starts really right back at the beginning of this letter in Romans 1 verse 1. So we could have read all the way from there, couldn't we? But uh, this is a letter. It's not, properly speaking, a book. Paul didn't sort of write this as a, as a little uh, self-contained book. He wrote it as a letter to a church, to brothers and sisters in Christ, in a church, in a particular place, in Rome. And uh, Paul is probably writing uh, from Corinth after his third missionary journey. You can read about his journeys in Acts. And he collected money uh, from Gentile churches for the Jewish church in Jerusalem and he's taking a gift to them and he has plans after that to go elsewhere to, to, to spread the gospel elsewhere and this church at Rome was, uh, was a bit divided in some ways, there were Jews and there were Gentiles um, and for various reasons there was still that division there and so Paul is seeking to address that, to kind of unify the church, he's also looking for, for funding probably for his mission to Spain that he wants to do so he's rehearsing the gospel, his position uh, before he asks the church's support for his mission. And he may also be putting in writing here what he's going to say back to that church in Jerusalem to convince them that uh, his mission to the Gentiles is, is right and proper and they should, they should help him in it. So there's an argument here in the whole of this letter for the gospel. It's, it's Paul's argument for the truth of the gospel. And his argument is that the gospel of the Lord Jesus reveals God's righteousness. You can read about it in the first few chapters. And it creates this new humanity, this new community of God's people, fulfilling God's promise to, uh, to Israel and uh, unifying the church. And uh, the section from uh, chapter 5 to about chapter 8 is, is showing how the gospel creates this one new humanity, this new community, no longer in Adam and sin, but in, but in Christ and in the Spirit. And so chapter 8 begins with the word therefore, which means it's connected to what came before. He says, therefore, if all this is true, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's connected. In the gospel, we're not condemned by the law any longer, but we're set free by the Lord Jesus and the Spirit to live for him. And we have a new status in the Lord Jesus. And it is a privileged status. Just look at, um, look at verses uh, 28 uh, to 30. Here's what he says about us now, if we are in Christ. Um, those God foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, declared righteous. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a lot in those verses. We're not going to unpack it this morning. But uh, just look at the last verse there, that, uh, the chain of things there. Um, God, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, and those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. 
So when Paul says, what shall we say in response to these things, he at least means those things, I think, in those couple of verses, but he probably means the whole, the whole of the letter up to that point. He's saying, here's the gospel. Here's the truth of the gospel, that God has brought us to new life in Christ. And he's cleaned us up, and he's declared us not guilty any longer, and he's brought us into his family, and he's made us heirs with Jesus. And then Paul can say, well, what, what will you say? What shall we say to these things? What's our response? It's a kind of rhetorical question meant to draw you in. What should we say? You're meant to say, well, what, yeah, what should I say? What should I say in response to this? What shall we say? This was probably written to a church and read out. This was definitely written to a church. It was probably read out to the church. So you can imagine people hearing this and saying, yeah, what, what shall we say in response to this? You're meant to respond. And uh, you're meant to respond in a way that encourages each other, encourages the church. And you're meant to talk about this together as God's people. We'll come on to the detail of it in a minute. The great truths of the, of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. The message of our salvation is, is for us. It's not beyond us uh, so that you know, we can't really grasp it. Uh, any of us could grasp it. Any of us can grasp even the simple things. And the truth of the gospel, it's not hard and it's not... Uh, technical and it's not dry and legal it shouldn't be anyway it shouldn't be just something for our heads it should be something for our hearts to engage in so that we can say what shall we say in response to this something something it must be something you can't just say nothing the gospel of the lord jesus ought to draw us to apply our salvation and to think about it and it should affect our hearts and our emotions and it should affect our behavior shouldn't it and our outlook and our priorities and our reasoning, and our will, and our priorities, and the way we think, and the way we live. So let me leave you with this, uh, this simple application first. This, this week, as uh, you think perhaps about God's word, and maybe other passages that you read, just think about how you apply this. Say the gospel to one another. Make it a goal to talk about uh, the gospel to one another, so that you could ask someone, what, 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 what do you say in response to these things? What do you say to them in response to these things? Make it a goal to talk about the Lord Jesus, even just to remind someone of, of a verse from the Bible that you've read that encourage you. What shall we say? Something, something, rather than nothing, something. It might be easy to talk about the rugby or the cycling or whatever, but, but let's talk about Jesus. Something, some truth about God, about our Savior, about his love for us, about his grace to us and his kindness to us. Something about him being for us to encourage us and build one another up. What shall we say in response to this? Something, something. Let's say something to one another this week to encourage us. Well, then Paul answers this question. What shall we say in response to this? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's just think about that bit for a moment. God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? You are meant to answer it in a certain way, aren't you, if you're paying attention, if you're listening to what Paul is saying. Um, God is for us. Who can be against us? Well, the answer is, it, it depends, I suppose, on your view of God to some extent, doesn't it? Because depending on what your conception of God is, you might answer differently. But if your view of God is the God of the Bible, then the answer to this question is no one, isn't it? It's a resounding and a decisive no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, you're meant to say. If this God is for us, no one can be against us. If God is for us, then there is no higher uh, being or person or thing that could ever be against us that really counts in the grand scheme of things. Um, as a church, we've spent uh, quite a while in the book of Acts recently, and uh, we've been working our way through them. We've just finished. 
And if you know something of Paul's life and uh, his ministry, you will know that he didn't lead a kind of charmed, easy life and privileged. Uh, it was a tough life. Read his experiences in the book of Acts. You can read it through fairly quickly. And you just see how much he had to put up with, how much he suffered. Uh, see what he went through. And pretty much all of that was because of his, his gospel ministry, because he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he had plenty of people against him. He could have listed them. Well, he does list the things that happened to him in some places. And he felt it painfully. He was beaten up and battered for the gospel. And you could come to this verse and say, well, hang on, Paul. Have you, have you forgotten all of that? Have you forgotten all that experience? When Paul asks who can be against us, I think he knows full well that there are plenty of answers to that question, that there are people against us. He knows that the world... The culture that we live in is against us as Christians. He knows that the flesh, our own, our own sinful natures is against us. He knows that the, there is an enemy, the devil, who's against us. But what he means here, I think, is this. That if God is for us, which he is, then no one can be against us in any way that really counts and that ultimately matters. Um, a while ago, I... Um, I listened to a little video I think John Piper was, uh, was giving, looking at these verses. And he put it this way, no one can successfully be against us. I, I thought that was helpful. No one can successfully be against us. There might be plenty of people that are against us. But even if someone wants to, uh, to harm us, even if they want to take our lives, ultimately all they will do is, is bring us into God's presence. So no one can be against us successfully. And uh, the us there, when he says, who, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who's that us? Well, it's those who have, what he's just talked about, those who have been saved, those who are loved by God, those who have been uh, predestined and called and justified and glorified. It's any of us who have run to Jesus for salvation. Those are the ones who can say, God is for us. Uh, he is for us. Uh, he is the one who is for us. So if he is for us, there is no one else who can question him and contradict him. No one. God is for us. The next part will tell us that God didn't spare his own son for us. So we know that, it, we know that God is for us. He certainly is. So this week, uh, remembering everything, and everything, everything that happens, everything that comes to you, if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, he is for you. Uh, God is not like a kind of... Um, uh, exam invigilator you know maybe you've maybe you've sat through exams and the and the invigilator kind of menacingly walks around the room often don't they just making sure that you're not doing anything you shouldn't be and it it feels as if they're just watching you waiting for you to slip up so they can kind of kick you out or something God is not like that he's not waiting for us to fail is he he's not looking and waiting for us he knows what we're like he is for us on our side he is loving us so much uh as to do all in his power to rescue us. And it means he will succeed in this, not just sort of give his best shot. God, God is successful. He is, he is for us and he's given his son for us. And so all that comes against us as his people must, must fall. Our, our sin, our sin is no barrier to God's saving power, is it? Because Christ has dealt with it on the cross. Uh, our enemies, if we have such things, are, are no obstacle to God's love for us. The devil has no weapon with which to do us any real damage because we are safe in God's hands. And there are many things in life that we seem to be against us. There may, be, there may be all kinds of life experiences that some of you are going through that might seem as if, well, they might overwhelm you. 
And you could put together a list, couldn't you? Illness and suffering and pain and sorrow and our sin and our regrets, perhaps. We could go on and on with things, couldn't we, that we might list against us. Many things might be, but if God is for us, says Paul, none of those things can successfully be against us to pull us away from him. What does the next bit say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here's, here's, some, here's some, uh, some proof of that. Here's something to bolster our faith. In case we think, well, is God for us? How do we know? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all. That's how we know God is for us, because he gave Jesus for us. And it's a helpful check, I think, these words here. In case we get a little bit sort of triumphalistic with, you know, God being for us, and we say, well, we can do anything. You know, God is for us. <laughs> Nothing can stop us. And, and then, you know, perhaps life hits us and some experiences hit us, and we say, oh, we didn't realize it was going to be this hard. Well, here's, here's a check on our, our being uh, overconfident. Paul reminds us of the cost of our salvation. What did it cost to bring us near? Um, God being for us doesn't mean we're always right and perfect and good, does it? Actually, the reason we know he's for us so clearly is that when all we deserved was his wrath and anger, when all we deserved was hell itself, God gave his son for us. He didn't even spare the most precious for us, but gave him up. And um, don't think of this as kind of, you know, the the, the persons of, of the Godhead sort of competing with each other. This is not as if the father sent his unwilling son to kind of suffer for us. There's no conflict within God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit determined and planned and purposed this, that this would be the working out of their gracious plan to save sinners like us. And that plan centers upon the Lord Jesus Christ coming, being given up for us. And he did come. He came in obedience to God's will and in the power of the Spirit to be given up, to carry all our sin, to pay for it on the cross, and to do that willingly and gloriously. And so that story, that gospel story, that's the story behind all, all of the stories, isn't it, of redemption and of salvation and of love and glory. And it's so amazing, and uh, it's, it's beautiful, and it's unexpected, and it's shocking that the eternal creator God should come here and take our place and stand for us. And uh, in, in that standing, to bear our sin uh, before uh, his throne of justice is a breathtaking thing. It's something we struggle to get our heads around, but it is glorious. God didn't spare his own son. That's how much he is for you. That's how much he loves you. So you need have no uh, doubt at all that he is for you when he's demonstrated it in this way. And so here's my application at this point. When you, when you doubt that he is for you, uh, when other things perhaps overwhelm, remember... Remember the cross. Think back to what Jesus did there on the cross. Remember that he gave his son for you. And when you're tempted to think that God is, is perhaps against you and not for you, maybe uh, you, you, you feel the experiences of your lives and you wonder. Just remember how much he is for you as you remember Jesus coming into this world to die for you. He is for you. He did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Well, there's one final part to, to this verse, isn't there? The last part of verse 32. And it says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? It's another uh, rhetorical question designed to kind of pull a response from you to make you answer in your mind. How will he not give us all things? Well, the answer ought to be he will. <laughs> Surely, certainly he will. 
And it's amazing logic here. If he's given us Jesus, Paul's argument is, if he's given us the very best, why would he withhold anything else from us, all the other things that we might need? It's an argument from the kind of greater thing to a, to a lesser thing. If this great thing is true, then surely how much more this lesser thing? Imagine you've got a good friend, a great friend, and uh, you know, they've been so kind to you. you you've, they've lent you their house in the past. They've lent you their car you know, when you needed a transport or something. You wouldn't hesitate, would you, to go to that same friend and ask for a cup of milk or a you know, bottle of milk or a cup of sugar or something. They've done, the, they've, they've done the much greater thing. And you wouldn't even think twice about going for the lesser thing because you're sure they would do it. If God has demonstrated his love and given the life of his infinitely precious dear son to save us, what else would he withhold from us? And why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense for us to think like that. To think that either God hates us or is indifferent to us or doesn't really love us. It doesn't make any sense for someone who is saved by the Lord Jesus to think of God's providence, whatever that might be for you, or the way that he works out his purposes. All those things as less than his, his gift to us. Well, what does that mean for us then? Well, I think it means this. Um, this week we can, you can rejoice and you can be glad that along with Christ, God has given you all things. So that means we, we should be careful how we talk about what life brings to us. Even that way of talking is a little bit risky, isn't it? It isn't life that brings things to us. It isn't fate or the stars or you know, chance or whatever. It is, all that happens to us is in God's gracious hands, isn't it? Which is a difficult thing, and it isn't an easy thing to think about because we're often baffled as to why certain things happen and we're not given all the answers. But we know that God is sovereign, and we know that his wisdom, his knowledge, are perfect. And so we trust him even when the way before us is dark. There are endless examples in the scriptures, aren't there, of people who, who were called to do difficult things. Think of Job, and think of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. Think of Moses, think of David. And we could go on, couldn't we? What about, um, what about health and wealth and prosperity? Is that what God is promising us here? He didn't spare his own son, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Uh, should we expect to, you know, to, to be healthy all the time and wealthy and full of prosperity and happy? Will he give us those things? Well, the question is, would, would they, if God gave them to us, would they be God being for us in, in that circumstance of our lives? Would they, would they make us lean upon uh, and trust him and love him more? Would they... Uh, help us to love each other more? Would they make mm -hmm. us find our joy in God? Well, I'm, if the answer is yes, then I think God may give us those things. He may allow us to have those things. There are some uh, gracious and godly uh, rich people, aren't there? But for most of us, and maybe this is the, the, where, we, where we are, the all things here does not mean that we'll be healthy, well, wealthy, and full of prosperity. It means all the things that we need uh, to live faithfully for it. Because sin, our own sin or the sin of others, might rob us of blessing, mightn't it? And of our health and wealth and happiness at times. Others, people's sin might have negative effects on your life. The brokenness of this world, just the fact that this world is, is affected by sin through no fault of your own or others, might mean loss or suffering. But this promise here is that if we have Christ, we in fact have all things. We have all that we need. It's all his, and we are his, and he is ours, 
And so it's all outwards. Here's the logic that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. He says, so then no more boasting about men. He's been speaking to a church there that's kind of boasting in which leader they follow. He says, so no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. That's a pretty comprehensive list, isn't it? He says, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So he's saying, really, you don't need to fret, and you don't need to grasp, and you don't need to be anxious, because you can come back always to your gracious Heavenly Father, and uh, he cares for you. He is for you. He's given us the Lord Jesus, and if we trust him, what else would he withhold from us that's good for us? So God is for us. There's four lessons for us this morning. This week, as you think about and uh, try and put into practice what God is saying to us, uh, say the gospel to one another, rehearse it, uh, get some response and give some response. Uh, if God is for us, that, that we can say this. Who can be against us? Respond and share the gospel and encourage one another with it. And remember in everything that if you're in Christ, he is for you. And when you doubt that he is for you, perhaps something knocks your trust there, knocks your sense. Remember the, the sacrificial love of the Lord Jesus uh, in, his own, uh, in his death for us. Uh, the giving of Jesus for us. And then rejoice and be glad that along with Christ, along with uh, Jesus, God has given us all things. It, it's all ours. He is, he is for us. He will be with us uh, if we trust him.